Father. Let's, let's pray, shall we? Lord, thank you for the hope that's within us. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. And we thank you, Lord, for the light that he brings and has brought into our lives. And we pray, Lord, now as we look into your word, that the living word, the light of that word, would just shine into our hearts and minds. Speak through this word. Thank you that the Old Testament and all of those wonderful examples and pictures point to Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we would be drawn to him as we think and ponder upon these words in Judges. Um, help us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're continuing to look through this book of Judges. The book covers about 400 years, so it covers a long period. And uh, during that time, God raised up a number of people, specially gifted people, or people who weren't necessarily gifted, but they were given by the Spirit power um, to do things that God needed them to do, uh, called that the Bible calls judges. And tonight we're getting to the first of the judges, the first three actually. But I just thought, do you know any judges? I mean, not living judges, I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> any of the judges in Judges? The book of Judges? Samuel. Samuel. Yes, Samuel was actually a judge. Yes, he was the last of the judges. Shout out. Gideon, Samson, Deborah, the women. Don't forget the women. Now then, that's, that's when we get we struggle then, don't we? Jethro, Jethro, well, yeah, Jethro. I don't mind you getting it wrong. <laughs> you know, yeah. We, yeah, there's, there's some well-known judges, but there are 13 altogether. Um, and some you won't even recognize when I mention them. There's Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, Tola, Abimelech. That rings a bell, yeah? And uh, there are three we're going to look at tonight. Chapter 3. Uh, Judges 3. Othniel, Ehud, quick look down, Shamgar. And uh, we'll, we're going to look at these in turn. But chapter 3, verse 1. First of all, in chapter 3, we have a bit of an introduction. So let me read the first six verses. So now these are the nations which the Lord left. It's interesting that just, just sentence, that the Lord left. We know that actually the nations were left because of Israel's disobedience or lack of trust. But somehow God worked his way so that there's a reason for those nations, some of those nations, to be left. And we'll, we'll see how that works out in a moment. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. And in brackets, this was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, the lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites, who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal, Hermon, to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them, to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. 
So the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. I know it's not the Bradfordites. I was thinking about that. I don't know why that came out. Anyway, so God used the enemies that were left in the land for two reasons. Or he, he left, he, he used them, sorry, for, um, to do two things. First of all, to test Israel, verse 1. These are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. And then verse 4 as well. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people who were left of the Canaanites in the land were left because of the... Well, they didn't trust... People of Israel didn't trust fully God's promises. He told them they had to drive out, either kill or drive out all of the people from the land. I was thinking about this. You know, that wasn't easy. I don't think it was an easy thing. It's easy to say, oh, well, just trust God. and they'll, They didn't just, you trust God and those people left. This was hand-to-hand combat. This was fighting. In driving out the Canaanites, it actually, it was a cruel age. So it was kill or be killed. And literally, people would have lost their lives in a very unpleasant way by following God's commands. So it wasn't pleasant. And yet, somehow, as they trusted God, God gave them power to overcome the enemies, even those with chariots. But it was those things that actually eventually stopped the children of Israel driving out the land. They they didn't have the power to overcome the stronger, uh, physically stronger enemies in the land. And God used the people who were left to test them. Now, with a test, you can pass a test Oh, you can fail a test. Of course, with Ian, everybody passes the test. Yeah, absolutely. But whatever the outcome, the testing of a person's faith is valuable because it actually helps to examine whether that faith is a good faith, strong faith. If you ever want to buy an expensive diamond, you not that you ever will want to, but if you ever did, you'd want to know that that was a proper diamond, wouldn't you? That it's actually passed the test. If you have a banknote, you want to know that's a genuine banknote. And of course, now there's ways that you can look at them and see whether these banknotes are, are genuine. You want to know whether that thing is genuine. Tests of the faith of people reveals what is genuine and what isn't. So Peter's faith was tested around that fire. And it was found to be genuine faith, but weak faith. His faith did not fail, so it was genuine faith. But his faith needed strengthening, and that's what the test revealed. And without that test, Peter's faith might have continued to be weak. So a test can be good, but actually it also can result in somebody's test, somebody's faith being revealed to be false. And I think that's, this is what happened with so many in the children of, among the children of Israel. Their faith was found to be not faith at all. 
as the years went by, they went back, they, went, they turned to idols. In others, they weren't really saved. They weren't following God with faith. So, first of all, the test was to... Sorry, the, 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 the um, people were left in the land to test. Secondly, they were left to prepare the people. Verse 2. In, this is the in brackets bit. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. So this, this was for the younger men, the younger generation. It's hard for us to think about this really, but in that day, they lived at such a time when any of their enemies could unite and would unite together to either kill them, wipe them out, or drive them out of that land. So it was survival of the fittest. And the people of Israel needed a fighting army. They needed to be taught how to fight. And so God used, even it's, strange, it's amazing, isn't it? God used their disobedience in, le- in not trusting him, leaving the people in the land, and he used that to help train his people in the battle, to learn how to fight. Later on, Saul, King Saul, needed an army. King Saul, we think of him as a failure, but actually he ruled for 40 years. And he extended the boundaries of Israel's kingdom, amazingly, under his reign. And then David even reinforced that. But they needed fighting armies. And so God used these enemies of Israel in the land to to stir them up, to to challenge Israel, to to prepare them for battle. It's interesting, that's how God works, isn't it? God uses challenging situations. He he uses difficulties we face, people, things that they go through. He uses them to test our faith, to show what's real, but he also uses them to prepare us for the battles that he wants us to fight. Someone has said this, like a blacksmith at his forge, God uses the heart, the heat, to soften our heart and sometimes uses the hammer to make us into the person he wants us to be. Somebody else said this, if a jeweler's hammer isn't strong enough to chip off your rough edges, God will use a sledgehammer. And if you're stubborn, he'll use a pneumatic drill. (laughs) He'll use whatever it takes. Warren Wearsby, in one of his commentaries, tells us someone he knew who was in in his congregation. A very gifted secretary, secretary who was going through some great trials. And she had a stroke and her husband had gone blind and been taken into hospital. And 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 he only had, um, he, he didn't have long to live. And Warren Wearsby, the pastor, saw this lady in church one Sunday and assured her that he was praying for her. And she said, and she asked the pastor, what are you asking God for? And he said, well, I'm asking God to help you and strengthen you. And she said, I appreciate that. But would you pray about one more thing? Please pray that I will have the wisdom not to waste all this. That's quite a big thing, isn't it? Pray in those situations. Lord, help me not to waste these things so I can learn, so that you can accomplish all that you want. 
So there's no there's no doubt to me that the the, the enemy staying in the land that that was through disobedience. That was the judgment of God on Israel and on their disobedience. But in God's providence, he actually turned the consequences of their disobedience for his purposes, for his glory. Do you get that? You know, they were the consequences of their disobedience was that the enemy were left in the land. That was and, and that was part of God's judgment on his people. The worst thing that God can ever do is leave us in our sin. But he did something, and he used the people in the land to fulfill his purposes. That's God's sovereignty, isn't it? And God takes a risk, it seems to me, that God actually can bless us in spite of our sin. It's a risk, because we might say, well, in that case, well, I might as well sin if God can bless me anyway. But God does that because he wants to show his grace and love and mercy. We have a great God. We have a wonderful God. A God to trust. And so that brings us to the first of the judges. So let's read verse 7 to 11. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the cycle now beginning. Again, evil, judgment, repentance, etc. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and serve the Baals and Asherahs. The Asherahs are like carved idols, uh, large thick poles which were idols. Verse 8, Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel, who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed I wish it would say over the king, over Cushan, Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So there's that cycle. And it, it, you'll, it keeps on coming in, in, in Judges. Disobedience, turning away from God, embracing the idolatry of the land. A period then when God judges, sends punishment, and allows the enemies of Israel to start being the dominant force. After a number of years, the people of Israel cry out. God, in his love, sends a deliverer, a judge. And this is the, this, this is the cycle. And God, in his mercy, sends them a judge. His name is Othniel. We've come across Othniel. You might not have... I don't know if we read this part, but in chapter 1, Othniel won the hand in marriage of Caleb's daughter. You know Caleb, the man of faith? His daughter was called Achsa. These names. And there Caleb promised whoever 
routed the enemy of the part of the land that he'd been promised, whoever overcame those enemies would win the hand of his daughter. And Othniel was the young man who rose to the challenge. And here it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And uh, if you ever think about the Holy Spirit, does, is, was the Holy Spirit at work in the Old Testament? Yes, he was. And often he came upon people. He, he filled them. He, he empowered them. He enabled them. So here he came upon Othniel. And God delivered Israel. First of all, there was a physical fight back. And he overcame, he overcame the enemy and led people against um, the enemies. And then there was 40 years when he led the spiritual fight back. And often the judges were those sort There was that sort of people. They, 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 they were like David. They were men of war, but they were also spiritual. And uh, so they fought, they commanded, they, they killed. And that was that time. And also, but also they were spiritual. And they, they, they led the people of Israel. I think one of the things about this, about Othniel, uh, there's a principle in all of this. that Think of it in our spiritual life. The spiritual battles we face can only be fought through the Holy Spirit. So here it was the Spirit of the Lord who enabled him. And that was an empowering, an enabling. And soon, of course, we're coming to Pentecost. And that is a constant reminder that we cannot do anything without the Holy Spirit, but especially fighting the battles we face. We're totally dependent on those battles, on on the Holy Spirit for those battles. And one of the battles we face, and it's a continuous temptation, I think, for us as Christians, as we get older, is to settle back and to take our ease. And there's there's a saying in Scripture, isn't it, um, about the eat, taking... What are those who are at ease in Zion. That's right. What are those who are at ease in Zion? Amos, in in, in Amos. And uh, Othniel had every reason to settle back. He'd fought his battle, going back in chapter 1. He'd overcome the enemy. He'd won the hand of his wife, He had land, because he was given land. Caleb gave him not only land, but springs. So he could settle down to a nice family life, prosperous, and um, have all that he needed. Take his foot off the pedal, as it were, sit back and think, wonderful. But he stirred himself with the Spirit's power to fight the next battle. And, you know, he risked his life. He, he could have said, no, let somebody else do this. I'm, 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 I don't want this. Is, I'm not up for this. And I, I think we, we do, I have to, I'm, I suppose I'm speaking to myself here. I, I know my, my temptation, no, let's put it on the, my tendency is always to take the easy side, easy route. And fires always burn out, don't they, if you don't stir that fire up. And I think in our Christian lives... In our walk with God, our daily walk with God, the onus is on me to make sure my fire doesn't burn out. I need to stir that up. I need to stoke the fire. So 
I can't rely on you to do that. I, for me, I've got to do that. You have to do that. We, we have to really stir ourselves up to make sure that we're putting the Lord first now, that, that we're ready for the battle. That's why it's good. I, I, it is good to put your armor on every day, I think, or at least consciously to think about the armor. Because whatever you're doing, you know, you, you, whether it's a relaxing day off, whether it's you're out walking, whether it's at work in an office or wherever it is, there is a spiritual battle. So that the, the enemy is going to come in in some way, and, and it will always come through the mind eventually. Um, so we need, to, we need that to learn from Othniel. Always be ready. Always stand firm with the Spirit filling our lives. And then we come to another one. Ehud. Chapter 3, verse 12. Can I just give a little warning here? If you're a bit squeamish, now's the time to take a toilet break or something. Or put your hands over your ears. Because it does get a bit, you know what I mean. Okay, here we go. So, verse 12. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. And when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud made himself a dagger. It was was double-edged and a cubit in length, that's a foot and a half, I have no idea what that is in metric. Anyway, foot and a half. And fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself, that's Ehud. (laughs) There's Ehud and Eglon. And in my preparation, I'm getting them all mixed up. So if I... Mix up, you know, who I'm talking about. But he himself, as Ehud, turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. And Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Then, uh, it gets worse. Well, not here, but I'm going to explain why. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room was locked. So they said he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So that, that means he was on the toilet, that's what they thought. So they waited till they were embarrassed, 
And still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and there was their master, fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud escaped while they delayed, and passed beyond the stone images, and escaped to Sira. And it happened when he arrived that he, that's Ehud, blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. Then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not follow anyone, allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So, what do we make of that? This cycle, disobedience, punishment, repentance and deliverance. It, uh, they followed the cycle and God gave the people over to Eglon, this despotic king, this very fat man for, who formed an alliance with uh, the people of Ammon and Amalek and he ruled for 18 years. The people cried to God. God raised up a man called Ehud. Do you know what the most significant thing about Ehud was? Left-handed. He was left-handed. Verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Tim Keller in his commentary on this passage says, to the, readers, to the first readers of Judges, the greatest surprise in this narrative would have been that Ehud, the man of God, the man God used, was left-handed. I, look, I looked and did a bit of research into this. In, in the scriptures, the right hand is the place of blessing. Let me just read some scriptures. Um, you, Psalm 16, 11, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well-known verse in Isaiah, fear not for I am with you, be not dismayed for I am, your, I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, yea, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jesus said, for David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Remember Stephen being martyred, he looked up and saw Jesus at the right hand of God. M most people were right-handed. And the right hand was always a symbol of power and authority and ability as well. That's why people always used the right hand weapon, the right hand with the weapon. If they had the left hand, they were very skillful indeed. In fact, some of the Benjamites, they, they threw stones with the right hand and the left hand. They were, they were the SAS, they were absolutely right, right up there. But the left hand wasn't a hand of honor. We have that in Asian countries today, don't we? Very much so. The left hand is dishonorable. You don't shake anybody with your left hand, especially if you go into India and Pakistan and places like that. 
It's not long ago in, in this country, in the 1930s and 40s, I was reading that children in school, if they used their left hand to write, they, were knuckle, they, they, they had a ruler over their knuckles. And some teachers would tie the hand, left hand to the chair to stop them writing, to force them, to make them learn how to write with their right hand. I, I, in fact, I remember even when I was young, we used to say if somebody was left-handed, they were cack-handed. I don't know if they're still there. They probably still say that. Oh, yes. <laughs> Just have <out of> interest. <laughs> Who's right-handed? I'm, I'm right-handed. Most. Who's left-handed? Quite a few, you see. Thank you. Who can use both hands? It's going to be used equally. Christine, right? Anybody else? It's I must run in my family. Yeah? <coughs> That's interesting. Yeah. My, my dad was, was both left hand. He was um, what's ambidextrous, isn't it? I was always envious of that. He was, yeah. But the, the other thing to mention about this is that it's amazing how many left handed batsmen there are playing cricket today. Oh, I, yeah, it's uh, true. We, we said when we were watching it, yeah. in this case, if we were left handed, they'd say so much trouble. <laughs> so much trouble. It's true, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, there, there's a, there was a stigma. And if that's true recently, you can imagine what it was like in those days. So in verse 15, it says, where it says that, actually, where it says that Ehud was left-handed, that can actually be translated as Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a man handicapped in the right hand. That's the literal, what it could mean. So it suggests that he wasn't just left-handed, he wasn't able to use his right hand, it was paralyzed or something, disabled. So, and, and this is the brilliance of the strategy, if you like, if you had a strategy. First of all, he found access to this king, Eglon, without raising suspicion. Then as the delegation left, he, he, he left, but then he, he let them know that he had a special, urgent message, secret message, just for the king. And the king allowed him into his presence, believing he was no threat at all, probably because of his paralyzed right hand. You know, he, he wasn't dangerous. And so he dismissed his guards, dismissed everybody. If he was searched, he had a dagger down his right side. So if he was searched, it's likely he wasn't searched because he wouldn't have been considered a threat. He was just a non-entity, really, you know. Um, but it's likely that they would have missed the, the dagger down the right side. And so as he draws near to the king with his message, he does the dirty deed. It says, verse 21 specifically says, then Ehud reached with his left hand, <laughs> it pronounces it, with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And at the end of verse 22, the new King James is actually over polite. And his entrails came out. It really is the dirt came out. Well, use your well, don't use your imagination, but you know what I mean. It's, and which is why the likely the guards thought he was on the toilet, basically. That's, that's, what, that's the, the thought behind it. And Ehud, while the guards were embarrassed and outside or his attendants and wondering what to do and thinking, why is he taking so long? And Ehud makes his escape. 
And God delivered them. And they had peace for eight years. So Ehud, was a, he was a surprising choice. You know, in a society which was even more cruel than ours is to people who were physically handicapped, he would have been looked down on. He, he, would, have been a, he, he would have been almost despised, if you like. No one would have naturally looked up to him as a leader. And yet he was God's choice. God does that, doesn't he? God does unexpected things. That's why I've called this, with God, expect the unexpected. God uses unusual people. Sometimes he uses the wrong people, <laughs> from our perspective. But God does that. God uses left-handers, in that, in that sense. And so Ehud escapes, and he calls the people of Israel to follow him. They wouldn't have followed him naturally, if he hadn't have done that, because he was Paralyzed, he was, he, was, he was a lame man. He was a, you know, he, he, he wouldn't have been looked up to. So God had His way. Some people are unhappy that God actually used an assassin, <laughs> to, you know, to, to lead His His people. But God does things sometimes which we cannot understand. But without that, that man would never have been looked up to, strong enough to be led by, to lead the the children of Israel. God uses unobvious people and doesn't use normal means sometimes. And all these judges point to Christ. He, he came. Jesus is the true deliverer. All of these judges, they had similarities, certain things, but they had things that Jesus just superseded. I love this, what Tim Keller says in his commentary. In it, he says that Jesus, the one true judge and deliverer, was the most unexpected left-handed person of all. And he, he quotes Isaiah 53, um, where it says, no, There was no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that he would desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. So just like... Ehud, he was an outsider, Jesus. And he overcame the people's enemy through his own weakness, through becoming a man, through submission, through crucifixion. And just like Ehud used his weakness to gain his victory, Jesus did that. But unlike Ehud, he didn't use deception. And unlike Ehud, he delivered his people not through being violent against them, but through actually being vi allowing violence to be done to him. And he overcame not through a great triumph, but through a crushing defeat. So all the judges in some way, they, they point to a greater judge, to, to Christ. And then just lastly, Shamgar. Just one verse, so it shouldn't be long. Verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. <laughs> I haven't noticed that before. It's nice, isn't it? It's like God, you know, he, he, oh, he made the stars also. So here, he, delivered, he, he killed these 600. Oh, and he also delivered Israel. That's good. Shamgar was used by God using just an ox goad. An ox goad was a big staff, about six, no, six to eight foot tall, apparently. Um, one end 
was sharpened or it would have been a metal um, point which, where which they prodded the ox and the other end was curved and flattened so that they could clean the plough. So you've seen Robin Hood and Little John and Little John with his staff and that sort of thing. It was that sort of thing. And Shamgar used this pole to kill how many people? 600 men. Didn't say all in one go. How that happened, we don't know. But he did that. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, he wouldn't have done that on his own. That was the, that was the Spirit of the Lord helping him to be the deliverer. Here was a man who defeated the enemy, even though his resources were limited. Very limited. And instead of complaining about not possessing a sword or a spear, nobody in the children of Israel had any weapons. We, re we read that later on. That there were no weapons, no spears, no because of the oppression. The people, the, their Philistines had, had confiscated them, taken them away. And so he, he used what he had, and the Lord used him and enabled him to overcome the enemy. He must have been really brave, mustn't he? Just to fight the enemy with that, trusting in God. With people with superior weapons, but he overcame them. Just like David and Goliath. And that's good, isn't it? Isn't it good to remind, be reminded that, uh, you know, don't, don't, well, I feel that my resources are limited. I, I feel at times, how can I do this? How can I possibly manage this? And, and my, my resources are very, very limited, just as yours are. And yet God wants us to take offer what we have. Spurgeon once gave a lecture to the students at his pastor's college, which he entitled, quite quaintly, to workers with slender apparatus. And yeah, we've got slender apparatus for God to use. But God can use those when the Spirit of God is allowed to work. So, Othniel, right, the man who trusted God but who knew the Spirit of God filling his life. Shamgar, an unlikely man. God can use the most unlikely people and, and use unexpected ways. Um, we must never limit God. Pointing to Christ, who was the great, left-hander, if you like, as uh, um, Tim Keller said, and Shamgar. God can use people even though we've got very, very limited resources because he's a great God. He's a wonderful God. Let's pray. Lord, we, th <clears throat> we thank you, Lord, that uh, the history of this world is a history of you using ordinary people often very unlikely people. And in your mercy, you equip them